I say it often and I'll say it again, we are blessed here at Exchange with some great uh, talent who can lead us in uh, worship and praise to our great God. Okay, today uh, we're um, starting a new series. Uh, we finished the book of Deuteronomy last week and sort of went that over the last few months. And uh, today we're, uh, we're starting a, a six-week series on discipleship commitment. Discipleship slash commitment. And uh, as I've been thinking about this and preparing for it over the last few weeks, thinking about it and then thinking about the messages coming up, I'm actually expecting God to do really good things in our lives, again, as we just open up through the scriptures, what it looks like to be a disciple, what it looks like to be committed to the cause of Christ, to, to be committed to the cause of the gospel, and to see the way the Holy Spirit will actually work in our lives. And the ultimate goal of this will be to see Jesus become a greater treasure in our hearts and our lives as we see what it is to become a disciple and to grow as a disciple in that commitment. And I am sure that as, uh, as people listen and hear God's word through this over the next uh, six weeks or so, I am sure that you will grow as you apply that word to your hearts with the help of God's spirit in and through that. Um, actually, I'll guarantee it. If you apply God's truth to your hearts and your lives, you will grow as a uh, committed and uh, disciple of Christ because that is what God wants to do. He wants to grow us as disciples of Jesus. That is God's heart. That is God's desire for us is to grow as disciples of his son Jesus. Six messages we'll do over the next few weeks. Uh, it'll be gospel conversion. It'll be committed to God's word. It'll be committed to prayer. It'll be committed to God's people. It'll be committed to serve. And it'll be committed to generous gospel giving of our finances as well to, to wind that up there, to see what it is to be a disciple who's committed to the cause of Christ and to committed to the cause of the gospel. Uh, today we're going to uh, start with gospel conversion. That's where a disciple starts. And today we're going to look at a passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And, and uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth a couple of thousand years ago. A church he loved, but a church also that had lots of dramas and lots of troubles happening within that church. But it was a church of disciples. It was a church of uh, followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes to them to strengthen them. So if you've got your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we will um, just read a few verses, uh, 1 to 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you today for this passage here in 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write this uh, 2,000 years ago to strengthen this church of disciples, these followers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask and pray now that you would uh, do that same work 
that you did in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago with these scriptures in our hearts today. That again, you would help us to see uh, the good news of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Help us to grasp the reality of that today as we think through that and speak through that as we think about conversion. God, I ask that and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I guess a working definition here of a disciple is simply a disciplined, as we get the word disciple, a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, This person, this disciple, is someone who's converted to Jesus. Obviously, to be a disciplined follower, you must be converted to Jesus Christ. Uh, A disciple then also is is committed wholeheartedly to Jesus. There's not one area of his life that is actually held back. He's committed wholeheartedly to Jesus. A disciple also is totally captivated by Jesus. Jesus becomes the treasure of the disciple's life. Jesus becomes the one that that actually, as it were, is entranced. Uh, And the disciple loves and serves Jesus and is totally captivated by Christ. As we think about this, this conversion to the gospel here, we need to ask ourselves a few questions that Paul talks about here in this passage. Now, what is the message of the gospel that Paul talks about here? Why is the gospel good news? Paul talks about the gospel being a message of first importance. He says it here in this passage. Why is that? Why or how can the death of Jesus Christ be good news? Isn't someone dying bad news? What what is sin? How serious is sin? What has sin got to do with the gospel? What has the gospel got to do with being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Some of those things we're going to explore now as we think about this passage. And we think about here what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. So what is sin? Paul makes it pretty clear in this passage that Jesus has died for something. And that's something that Jesus died for is our sins. Right there in the middle of verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus, the Christ, died for our sins. So just what is sin? What exactly is this thing sin uh, called sin that Jesus had to die for? As we think about discipleship, it's really, really important that we at least, at least get a basic understanding of what sin is. And from this passage, what we do get is an idea that sin, an idea that it's sin is very serious. Jesus had to die for it. It's no small matter. It requires death. Here's one sort of explanation of what sin is from the Bible. From 1 John 3, 4, it says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Simply what um, John is saying there, sin is breaking breaking God's law. The Bible gives us here this explanation of, of sin is uh, the breaking of God's law. We look at the Ten Commandments, which we looked at a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy, and it's very easy from, to see from that if anybody breaks those laws, God's good laws, uh, we have sinned against God. God says don't lie. So when we lie, we are convicted of breaking God's law and we are convicted of sinning. Sin is disobedience to God's good rules or laws for our life. Laws and rules have been put in place by our Creator, for order and harmony in the world that God has created. When we upset God's order and harmony of life through breaking his laws, we sin against God. Now from that, we could go to a whole list of activities 
of what is sinful. We could list a whole range of things that directly reject or rebel against God's good and right laws. And that they do serve well for giving us examples of those things if we were, if we were to read out a list of what they are. But what I'd like us to do as we think about this um, idea here of sin is think about it from, for a moment from the basis or foundation of where sin comes from. And Paul actually gives us a really good foundation of what sin is coming from or where the root or the foundation of sin is from. And it comes from what we worship. Let's have a look in Romans 1, 24, 25. We'll bring that up there for you. And Paul says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, sinful activities, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. All sin starts from believing a lie as opposed to the truth about God. You see what Paul is saying in this passage here is this. Our hearts indulge in and long for impure and dishonouring things. It says it right there. It talks about this impu- our hearts given over to impurity. And from that we could probably then put the long list of what these sinful things are that our hearts indulge in and lust towards. But notice here what Paul says, it, where it comes from in verse 25. He says there, because, that's a very important word, because. It's telling us where this impurity and dishonouring of their bodies, sinful activity, comes from. It comes from because we've exchanged the truth We've taken the truth about God and we've actually exchanged it for a lie. And we've worshipped and served the creature, that's us, we worship and serve ourselves, other than the creator who's created us and given us life. Sin comes from believing that everything God has made is more beautiful and glorious than him, the creator. And then what we do is we go and serve and worship those things instead of God. Sin is a worship issue. Its base cause, its base foundation is a worship issue. We believe the lie and then we go and worship the lie. We believe the lie that what God's created is more glorious than him and more to be treasured than him and then we go and worship those things. Sin then becomes anything we worship or place a higher value on than God. We were created to worship God. He, was, he, was, he should be supreme in our lives, first and foremost. But we exchange that truth about God for a lie, and then we go and worship all these other things. It looks like this. I crave power. Power makes me feel good. When I'm in control of everything, then life makes sense and I feel fulfilled. Power turns me on. So if anything gets in the road of me and my power that I'm craving for or worshipping or placing supremely in my life, I will do whatever it takes to remove those obstacles that are stopping me getting to the point where I'm in control or I'm in full power of everything. So a situation could be like this. We may lie or gossip about somebody in the, in the office pool. It could be a bunch of girls or a bunch of guys working in an office and there's promotion on offer. And I'm actually, I want the power. I want to get that promotion. So what do I do? These other people could be in my road. I may gossip about them. I may say bad things about them, critical about them, try and cut them down 
to get my way to the point of position of power within the office pool. That's an example of how it looks. Power has become my craving, power has become the supreme desire of my life and then from that I'll indulge in sinful activity to get what I want, to serve power. You see, you can see that sin is foundationally a worship issue. It's what we worship. As soon as we worship anything other than God, if he's not supreme in our lives, then our lives go after other gods, the Bible calls them idols, and then we begin to indulge in sinful activity as we serve these idols or serve these other gods in our lives. What we worship will either lead us into right living before God or it will lead us into sinful living before God. So a disciple comes to this understanding that my sin is a result of choosing to worship anything else other than God. Disciple gets this understanding about what sin is. It's a worship issue. It's the choices I make when it comes to worship. And then this leads me into sinful activity as an outworking of that. As we think a bit more about sin, we've got to think about what has sin done to me and what has sin done to this world. The first sin that was committed by Adam and Eve had major implications for all of mankind to follow. Thinking about what sin has done to us. And if you think about Adam and Eve, they had a power issue. They wanted to rule themselves. They wanted to be in control. They were tempted to be like God. They wanted to control their lives. So they wanted to be self-ruling. They rejected God's good rule and chose to rule themselves. Prior to that, they lived in perfect harmony with God, walked with him in a garden, communed with God in a very intimate way. But after the fall, although we call it the fall, it's not just simply they fell over. It was a monumental disaster for the human race from that point onwards, as we see what sin has done to us. That sin or that choice to worship something else other than God, but they chose to worship themselves at that time, I'm talking Adam and Eve. When that happened, the corruption or the absolute breakdown of the, of the uh, image of God that was created in humanity has entirely worked its way through us as individuals. It has left no stone unturned in working its way right throughout our lives. This desire for self-rule has ingrained itself within us right down to the very last cell of our living beings. When we choose to worship anything else other than God, it affects every part of us, our mind, our will and our emotions, and we are all caught up in those areas in our lives. Everything right down to the very core of who we are is totally uh, corrupted now by sin. There's not one part of us that isn't immune to this broken, faulty hard drive within us. The prophet Isaiah captures this in Isaiah 1. He says this in verse 5 to 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of your foot, to the t even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Isaiah there is talking about the sinfulness of Israel at that particular time and their rejection and their rebellion before God. But really what he's actually giving to us is symptomatic of the corruption of sin throughout the entirety of a human being. From the sole of their foot to the top of their head. This picture of the corruption of sin that has worked throughout our entire beings as people. From top to bottom we are ruined by sin. There's not one person who's immune to this condition. 
There are no exceptions. Nobody can say that I have no sin. Nobody can say that I am pure. Nobody can say that I've never done anything wrong in my life and that I'm totally and completely innocent. Nobody can say that. In fact, Paul tells us this same thing in Romans 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Take note of that word, that all. There's no exceptions in the word all. That all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none, none is righteous. No, not one. Very long discussion there about sin that Paul goes into through those early chapters of Romans. He doesn't leave any room to move as far as are there any exceptions here to this corruption of sin and what it's done to our lives. There's no exceptions. No, not one. So who does that include? All of us. Sometimes people look at Mother Teresa of Calcutta and think she must be the saintliest woman on this earth. To do what she's done to minister to those uh, lepers and those homeless kids in India in such filthy, dirty conditions. What a saintly woman. What a beautiful woman. Mother Teresa is corrupted by sin through and through. There's no exceptions. No, not one. What else has sin done to us? Sin deceives us and then blinds us to the truth. There's a deceptive nature that comes with sin that totally fools us into believing lies. We saw it right back there at the start of Romans. We exchange the truth about God, the most glorious being ever. We exchange that for a lie. That shows you there how sin has deceived us and led us to believe a lie. Proverbs 16.2 says this, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Generally, sin will try and justify itself with us. Our corrupted thinking will justify our sinful actions by saying he or she deserved that. It'll try and put reasons in behind why we carry out certain actions. After the way he or she's been treating me and the things they've said about me, it's only right that I get back at them now. You see, all those things they, that I've said about them are true in their gossip or their cutting down or their critical nature. That doesn't mean it's right to go and say them, even if they may be true. Sin gets in there and it deceives us. It justifies its position. It tries to tell us what you've done is right. It's, it's a hideous thing what it does in our hearts and does in our minds. Sin is blinding. It really does make us think we are better than what we really are. It says there in chapter, verse 2 of Proverbs, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. In our own eyes, they're pure. Because we justify it. But God knows and God weighs the spirit. Sin affects every part of our lives. There's not one part of our lives that isn't affected when it comes to this. Why do we relationally break down or why do marriages break up or why do we bitter and uh, why do we have bitter at family and friend disputes? Why do all these things take place? Why is there suffering and sickness and dramas all around this world? This all comes from the faulty foundations of sin in our hearts. Our hearts are totally bent with these broken desires and these false gods that we worship. These false gods call us to worship them and do whatever it takes to achieve that agenda. James chapter 4 tells us this very same thing. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James asks. 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This all comes out of this foundational issue of a faulty heart, a sinful heart. I'm not getting what I want from my husband or my wife. I'm not getting what I want from my friend. So what will I do? I'll give them the silent treatment. I'll give them the cold shoulder. These passions that are corrupted arise within us and off they go, they work from there. You could translate that to any relationship, any situation, any circumstance. And this is what happens, these corrupted passions, these corrupted desires that are corrupted by sin is what causes these fighting and quarrelling and whatever situation you want to put to it. Now I know there's all sorts of other contributing factors that come into that that actually contribute to that, but the base cause, the base cause, the foundation comes from this corrupted sinful heart that has corrupted sinful passions and desires. Sin cuts us off from God. When we choose to sin, that is worship anything else other than God, we turn our backs on God and then we are separated from him because of this sin. Isaiah 59.2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In Israel's day, they thought everything was great. They could just go to the temple and and offer their few sacrifices and put up their few prayers and God would just continue to bless them. And they go out that very same day and they would be killing and murdering and and, uh, prostitution and sort of thieving and stealing and lying. And they just come back to the temple and do it all again next week. And and Isaiah said, no, no, no. If you're living in willful, regular, premeditated sin, um, you will be separated and cut off from God. This is the separation that here that sin does. It totally separates us and cuts us off from God. We think we're all right. We think we're basically a good person, just like the Israelites may have thought that back then. But our sins have separated us and cut us off from God. So a disciple grasps what sin has done to him and what sin has done to this world. And a disciple begins to feel the weight of this sin, begins to see and feel the corruption of what sin has done in twisting and corrupting my heart in all of its passions and desires that are bent and broken. What are sin's consequences? Sin has even more serious and dire consequences than the here and now we've just been talking about. It's pretty bad as it is in this world, but it gets worse. Sin has eternal consequences. It's not just a few slaps over the wrist we may feel here and there, here and now, but we have consequences that go way beyond the realm of this world. Consequences that actually move into an eternal dimension. God told Adam that the day he would disobey God and eat of the tree in the garden, he, that is Adam, would die. Adam, you can do anything you like in this garden. There's just one tree in the middle of that. Leave that alone. The judgment upon that sin then for disobeying God was death. He said, Adam, the day you eat of that, you will die. Today, God's judgment upon sin is more serious than we could ever describe here because we've been blinded to the goodness and the holiness of a great God who's created us and given us life. And we don't see the seriousness of God's judgment upon this sin and upon what it has done to us. 
sin is a direct attack upon the character and the holiness of God's name and person. When we sin and we disobey God directly, it really is a direct attack upon God. If evil and sin is allowed to rise up and continue on without any judgment against it, or if it's allowed to just go on and on without being eventually finally done with, in other words, God's not going to deal with sin, if it's allowed to just go on and on and on, then God is not a good God and God is not a just God. A good God would not allow that to go on and on and on. It's no different in our judicial system today in the courts that we have. If we have a judge who continually has criminals come to him, criminals that have done all sorts of crimes, and if the judge just keeps letting them off all the time, we would cry out there's no justice there. That's not right. We need to stop this in our society. We can't let criminals go on and on and on breaking the laws and disrupting society and disrupting community, and you're just going to just give them this get out of jail ticket all the time, we would say this is not right. So it's just the same that it is not right that God would allow this to go on and on and on. God will not allow it to go on and on and on and on. God has judged and decreed that the penalty of sin is death. Tells us in Ezekiel that the soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. God has set aside a day of righteousness when all humanity will be judged for all eternity. All sin and sinners will be cast into an eternal hell of everlasting torment, time without end, suffering under the wrath of God. It doesn't, that normally bounces off us sometimes when we hear that sort of stuff. And we're going to read a passage in a minute that, you know, again, it. it, it doesn't dawn upon us sometimes because we've, we've lost sight of the holiness of God. We've lost sight of the, the nature of who God is and his justice. Revelations 20, 14, 15 gives us a picture of this. Then death and hate were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sometimes we just sort of think, oh, that's some sort of Hollywood imagery there. The consequences of sin can't get any more serious than that. It's not Hollywood imagery. You know, whether it's a literal lake of fire really doesn't matter. The whole concept here of, of this is torment or suffering under God's righteous wrath. The consequences of sin can't get any more serious than that eternally cut off from God and eternally thrown into hell. As a great preacher I listened to a few years ago said this, uh, his name was Leonard Ravenhill, he said there's a million roads into hell, but he said there's not one road out of hell. There's a million ways you can make your way into hell. There is not one road out of hell. A disciple grasps the dire eternal consequences of sinning against a good, holy and just God. And a disciple grasps what the end result of that will be. How do we think about that? How does the world think about that? How does other religions think about this idea here of sin, corrupted hearts and the repercussions of that throughout this life? Other religions don't really have an answer for this, for evil and what to do about it. 
most of them think about concepts of, you know, just do enough good and you'll get on the right side of this sort of supreme being or whatever's out there. It's the sort of good karma, bad karma thing. And if you, for those who believe in reincarnation, well, I'll just go through a whole number of lives and I'll eventually get to the next plane, the next plane, I'll keep getting higher and I'll eventually reach perfection. That's the only way they can deal with sin and evil. It's not, it's something really outside of them. It's not something they're actually responsible for. The world downplays the seriousness of sin. When somebody gets caught out in adultery or uh, extramarital sex, the world just calls it, oh, it's just a fling on the side. It's just a one-night stand. You know, everybody does it. They don't actually get it, the seriousness of what sin is and what this corrupted heart has done. No one's a liar anymore. All they do is misappropriate the truth. There's no depth here of the grasp of this corruption that's in our hearts. Even the church really doesn't handle the talk about sin very well. Won't all this talk about sin seem negative? Won't it drive people away from the church? If we talk about God's holiness and justice and his judgment towards sin, won't that make God look like a fire-breathing dragon? We love to think the best about each other, and when we think it's wrong if we start to talk about sin and evil in our lives. So it's, it's challenging. It's hard for us. We don't want to perhaps address those things because they're awkward or uncomfortable. And we'd rather just think the best. So we actually think if we just talk about enough good things... Maybe eventually those bad things will just sink away into the background somewhere. Because surely if we talk about these bad things, won't it do harm to their self-esteem or their self-confidence? See, the church as well doesn't do a good job sometimes of thinking about sin and actually addressing the truth of our hearts. Now, we must see and we must feel the deadly nature of sin. We must see it. A disciple must see it and grasp it. A man by the name of John Owen, a Puritan preacher from the 16th century, uh, made this statement at the, one of his, at, uh, at the start of one of his books. And he says this. He says, Be killing sin or it will kill you. Be killing sin or it will kill you. He gets it. He gets it. He understands the nature of what sin has done to us. He understands that mankind's biggest problem isn't their bank account, isn't where they live, isn't the job that they haven't got yet, isn't the husband or wife that they haven't got yet, isn't the car they've been longing for all their lives they haven't got yet. That is not mankind's biggest problem. Mankind's biggest problem is sin. And mankind's biggest problem is staying in sin will cause us to fall into the hands of a righteously angry God towards sinful rejection and rebellion of him. In our natural state, we are in enormously big trouble. Trouble I can't even begin to measure to try and explain it to you. We have dramas in our natural state, in our sinful state, that we cannot deal with in our own capacity. A disciple rightly understands the seriousness of sin 
and its eternal consequences may not fully understand it, but at least rightly understands this nature and this depth of sin. Now, if we left the story here at this point, we're left with no hope. We are doomed and we are in big trouble. But in steps this remarkable statement that Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 3. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is the centrepiece of the gospel message. This is the very heart of the gospel. The disciple's life gets a right view of the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, for your sins. Jesus has come and dealt with this problem that we cannot describe in measurement, this sin problem. He has come and he has dealt with my sin problem. Jesus of Nazareth, God's only son, God came as a man and he died in our place as our substitute on that cross bearing all of our sin, taking all of its penalty, the penalty of death, and suffering God's right wrath for our sin in my place or in our place. God has revealed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, in our willful rejection and rebellion of God, while we were yet like that, Jesus has came and died for us. And not only that, Jesus has risen from the grave, defeating sin and death on our behalf, demonstrating that his sacrifice was perfectly accepted by God. And we too have that same hope of rising from the grave and living in resurrection life with him. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is what makes the death of Jesus Christ good news. There's nothing good about telling somebody somebody's died. But when you get the grasp and understand here why this person's died, this becomes good news. Sin in all of its wicked, deceitful ways has bound us up to its desires. Jesus comes and he sets us free through his perfect sinless life. So why all the talk about sin? Why can't we just say that God loves you and he died for you? Because for the gospel to be truly good news, there needs to be an understanding of why the death of Jesus Christ took place. If I come and tell somebody, God, Jesus died for you, if somebody's uninformed, they'll say, what for? Why did I? There must be some bad news before the good news. There must be some uh, laying out before us what our problem is, what the drama is, what the eternal consequences are. And then the good news, which is preceded by the bad news, becomes unbelievably good news. When someone realises the dire situation they're in and what God has done to rescue them and save them, the good news becomes really, really, really good news. Jesus has come and done something that I could never, ever do. That's why Paul says here that the gospel message is of first importance. He's saying this is the most prominent thing. This is the most important thing that you must get in your heads and you must do your best to understand. He said, all the things you learn in this world, which are important, which are prominent, but the most important and the most prominent must be the message of the cross, must be the message of Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because if we get that wrong, we will get all of life wrong. 
Sure, you may live a very successful life here and achieve lots of things on this earth, but then you will stand before God in judgment. If you have not got the gospel right, everything you've achieved on earth will mean nothing standing before this glorious, just and holy God. So when we share this message of the gospel to people, we actually should be hoping for initially is a conviction of sin. Uh, Jesus tells that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment to come. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, initially working with somebody for the first time. We actually want them to feel some conviction, not, to, not from us, but from the Holy Spirit working in the hearts, trying to, to convince them that they have a problem and they can't solve the problem. And then we can point them towards Jesus who has solved the problem for them on their behalf. If we can do that, if we can convince them and tell them of what the problem is, carefully, thoughtfully, sensitively, I'm sure that all we have to do after that, if the Holy Spirit has done his work, is just whisper, Jesus has died for your sins. And they will get it. They will see, after all that, Jesus has died for your sins. All is well. All is forgiven. Christ has been crucified upon that cross for your sins. That is the good news. Ask for his forgiveness. Trust in his death in your place for your sins. Turn from your sin and you shall be saved. You shall receive that forgiveness that he gives. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn many, many years ago. And uh, it fits well because it really describes exactly what has taken place here. Let me read it for you. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. It is mercy, all immense and free. Oh, praise my God, it reaches me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. My eye... Diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? <coughs> Charles Wesley got the conversion experience and that's exactly what it is. My eye diffused a quickening ray. God penetrated my heart. My chains fell off. My sin was broken. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? A disciple starts by hearing the gospel message and responding to it. A disciple is humbled by the gospel. A disciple is filled with joy by the gospel as it drops upon him, as it drops and breaks those chains of sin off him. A disciple loves and treasures Jesus through the gospel message. 
a disciple is eternally empowered by the gospel. Today, have you heard the gospel? Have you responded to the gospel? Has that ray of light shone into your heart to reveal what Jesus has done for you? Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessing of your glorious Son. Thank you, Lord, that we are all prisoners bound in chains, hopeless and helpless. Those chains of sin have bound us down and they are killing us and they will eternally kill us. We were prisoners trapped in our own world of sin. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me, that Jesus, you would come and you would take all of my sin, all of its guilt, all of its shame, all of its condemnation, and you would bear that upon yourself. You would suffer under God's wrath so that I can go free. Holy Spirit, today I pray that you would do that for any of those there who have not heard the message of the gospel before. Maybe they've heard it a thousand times. Maybe today. Maybe today that shaft of light has penetrated their heart. I pray it has. I pray it has. Do that work, I pray, Holy Spirit. Draw them to Christ and see what a glorious, wonderful Saviour he is. Let them become a disciple, a disciplined follower of Jesus one who's converted, one who's committed, and one who is captivated by Christ. Father, I ask and I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll get the um, singers to come up and just perhaps lead us in that last song you sung for us. I would love to talk with anybody who, um, who's who been challenged by uh, today's message. I would would love to catch up with you and talk with you. So if you want some prayer or want to talk, I would love to do that. If you'd like to stand, we'll sing. Uh, broken vessels to close. All these pieces broken and scattered Mercy gathered man's head and soul Empty-handed, but not forsaken. I've been set free. I've been set free. Oh, amazing grace! How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Oh, I once was lost, but now. I can see you now. 
wonderful and blessed week, reminded of that amazing grace which has freely been extended to all of us.